bulldozing an editor, preacher arrested for forgery, the Cincinnati police cases, even more about the Mississippi Penitentiary scandal, and city news from the Memphis Appeal for the 28th of February, 1886. Please note that some articles use language considered offensive by today's standards. Helena, Arkansas. Attempt to bulldoze an editor into a correction special to the appeal. Helena, Arkansas, February the 27th. Quite a little sensation was created on our streets this evening by one Shelton, now acting deputy constable of this township, going to the Patriot office and demanding that a correction be made in an article that appeared in the Patriot of the 14th instant. The editor, H.E. Carr, politely but firmly informed him that he had done him no injustice and that the day had passed when corrections had to be made to contentable curs. Shelton took umbrage at this rather forcible language and drew a pistol, pistol and struck at Carr. The blow was warded off and bystanders took the would-be pugilist off. Pine Bluff, Arkansas. A Negro preacher arrested for forgery, special to the appeal. Pine Bluff, Arkansas, February the 27th. A Negro named J.H. Balch was arrested here today, charged with a forgery of Sheriff J.M. Clayton's name to a tax receipt and received money on it. Balch is a minister and at one time was deputy sheriff. Another murderer to be hanged. Fort Smith, Arkansas, February the 27th. Robinson Kemp was sentenced in the United States court today for the murder of Henry Rich near Fort Wichita, Indiana, Tuesday, May 1884. Rich was postmaster at Fort Wichita. He was driving a truck carrying mail when about sundown he was fired upon and mortally wounded by some person in ambush. The evidence against Kemp was purely circumstantial and his lawyers have searched the whole country for sufficient testimony to warrant a new trial. Pending this search, sentence was suspended, but today Judge Parker overruled the motion for a new trial and sentenced Kemp to be hanged Friday, April the 23rd. The same day, seven other condemned Indian Territory murderers are to be hanged. The Cincinnati Police Cases, Columbus, Ohio, February the 27th. The Supreme Court this morning rendered judgment of ouster in the cases against the Cincinnati Police Commissioners, but refused to oust Superintendent Hudson, who was elected for one year. The action of Governor Foraker in removing the commissioners is thus sustained. In Hudson's case, the decision is unanimous, but in the commissioner's case, Follett dissented. Found dead in his room, New York, February the 27th. Lying on the floor of a room in an old rickety building on 16th Street, the dead body of John Moran, a good-looking young man, was found. He had been dead 12 hours when discovered yesterday afternoon. It was soon learned that Moran had been shot by Henry Prange while trying to burglarize the store of Fred Tomshill, Prange's employer, and had been carried by his companions to the room in which he was found dead. Two arrests have been made. Important extradition case, Brandon, Ontario, February the 27th. Judge Jones today rendered a decision in the extradition case of Martin A. Van Fleet, the defaulting treasurer of Hurin County, Ohio. Judge Jones considers that the altering of any figures on treasury books constitutes forging both in Canada and Ohio and under the Extradition Act committed Van Fleet, but he will not be delivered up to the United States authorities for 15 days, during which time he can apply for a writ of habeas corpus. Jackson, Mississippi Letter, the other side of the penitentiary scandal, which has aroused so much attention and called out so much comment in Mississippi. Correspondence of the Appeal. Jackson, Mississippi, February the 26th. 
As the majority report of the Senate Committee on the Penitentiary has received publicity and has elicited severe criticisms of a personal character on high officials in Mississippi in a letter to your paper signed Truth and in editorial comments by you and other papers, and as there are generally two sides to every question, even where personal honor and integrity is involved, I propose to and herewith give the other side of the question alluded to in a brief synopsis of all the salient points of the Senate Minority Report of the Committee on the penitentiary. I am prompted in this by a spirit of truth, justice, and fair dealing, and submit the same without comment to the verdict of the public. Synopsis of the report of Senators D.C. Casey and J.R. Benford, minority of the Senate Committee on the Penitentiary. All papers and information cheerfully furnished by leasees find that estimates and contracts for work done are properly made and approved as required by law relating to the same, that the leasees, by the terms of their contracts with the state, were not required to pay money into the state treasury, the law expressly providing that the amount due on the lease should be expended for no other purpose than the improvement of the penitentiary property. This opinion of the committee is concurred in by such attorneys as Monsieur Nugget and McWillie and Judge S. Calhoun, whose written opinions are submitted and who have no interest in or connection with the matter. The report further claims that the leasees had a right to withhold the payment of money into the state treasury and to require that they be permitted to make improvements or repairs to the amount of the rent or hire due the state, the making of contracts with leasees when contemplated by all the legislation on the subject for the past 10 years, that the terms of their contract conferred on the leasees authority to withhold for 11 or 12 months the amount due the state and to hold the same until they had made repairs and improvements to the amount of the entire hire due the state to the expiration of their lease that the leasees have been contractors for the work on the prison property since 1877, and it was never intended nor expected that it should be otherwise. They have paid into the state treasury $58,500 in cash, which they could have worked out in improvements had they deemed proper, and they cannot be held on their bond for payment in any other manner. That settlements for all amounts due the state up to the date of transfer to the Gulf and Ship Island Railroad, accounts approved, have been allowed and balances paid into the state treasury, That is to say, for 1883 and 1884, to cover the full amount of contracts for the state for said two years, that the Gulf and Ship Island Railroad Company has assumed the contract with the state as authorized by law. In the matter of allowances made the leases for unfinished contracts, as set forth in the majority report, the minority say that precisely the same state of affairs existed in 1880 and 1881, as shown by the report of a former superintendent made to Governor Stone, stating that up to that time improvements and repairs had been made to the amount of $25,897.68, the amount completed being $14,970.18, and the amount unfinished and on which work was then going on being $10,925. Other instances of like character of the above are cited from the report of a former superintendent showing that these leasees in this particular have followed the usual custom of former leasees under a formal administration, that these contracts were made by the superintendent and approved by Governor Lowry, precisely as was done by Governor Stone on similar contracts made by a former superintendent. I'm sorry, this the story just goes on and on and on. <laughs> under the contract of lease, the leasees bound themselves to carry out the provisions of the existing law in reference to the penitentiary and to carry out the laws then in force. And by the terms of the contract, the law of 1877, after it repealed in 1884, was made a part of the contract. The committee state that it is their opinion that any act of the legislature passed during the continuance of said contract which impaired or abrogated any clause of the same 
except for police purposes, would be nugatory and of no force or effect during the time such contract was in force. That the superintendent is authorized to contract for repairs and improvements by the Act of 1877 and by the Act of March 15, 1884, the same being explicit on the subject. They say that the governor approved the estimates and contracts made by the superintendent, a gentleman elected by the legislature and under a bond of $30,000, without hesitating, when he was assured by him that such repairs and improvements were needed and the price charged reasonable and just, as certified by leading architects. That, as to the authority of the superintendent, with the approval of the governor to make these contracts, he obtained from the attorney general an opinion that he was fully authorized to do so. That said superintendent further fortified his action by submitting the estimates and prices to leading architects for the better protection of the state and approved said contracts only after said architects had certified that the prices were just and reasonable. In this matter, they say they commend his action and fail to see what better safeguards could be thrown around the public officials in the approving of contracts than are erected about the governor and superintendent. They say that they refuse to accept the estimates made by the architect brought here by the committee as they are in direct opposition to certified statements made by four of the best architects and builders of the city of Jackson. Mr. H.M. Taylor, F.W. Owen, James Swan, and F.B. Hull, who certified that by actual measurement the estimates for brick for the buildings and walls are correct and that the price charged, therefore, is just and reasonable. These facts, the report says, the gentleman above named would have sworn to had they been allowed to come before the committee, which was denied them. That the said four architects claim to have made separate estimates and measurements of the work done and to have reached the same result. That their statement is entitled to the fullest faith and confidence and should be so received. They say that they failed to find that the leasees received a credit of $5,539 for work of which was not a lick had been struck as charged in the majority report. They then go into details of certain buildings and improvements made for which credits are allowed and claim that all were correct. The majority report has been printed and distributed. The minority report is in press and will be ready for distribution in a few days when the public can read in full text of each and form their judgment on the matters discussed. Signed, Fair Play. The next section of the paper is titled City News. There were four arraignments in the criminal court yesterday. Robert Brantley, four cases, Frank Cooley, Jim James, and John Bowling. In the criminal court yesterday, George Ward was sentenced to a year in the workhouse for assault to kill, George Wilson a year for assault and battery, John McKinney 90 days and $50 for obtaining money under false pretenses, and H. Montgomery three years for stealing a mule. The report of Inspector Lane of the Society to Prevent Cruelty to Animals and Children for the month of February shows sore and disabled mules and horses relieved, 45. Overloaded vehicles, 10. Dogs, 1. Cows, 1. Children protected, 1. Horses and mules shot, 5. Total, 63. Persons arrested, 20. Found guilty, 20. Mary Ward, colored, filed a petition in the circuit court yesterday asking that she be restored to citizenship. It appears by the petition that Mary Ward was convicted of larceny in the criminal court about two years ago and was sentenced to one month's imprisonment and rendered infamous. She contends that she was wrongfully convicted and that she desires the sentence of infamy removed in order that she may bring suit for money loaned. And that's the crime news for the 28th of February, 1886, from the Memphis Appeal. 
Hopefully we won't hear any more about that Mississippi penitentiary scandal, but we probably will. Join us next time for A Year of Crime, as reported in the newspapers of West Tennessee.